Hello, Free Speech and Medicine podcast listeners. Thanks for listening to another in our 2023 Free Speech and Medicine Conference speaker series of podcasts. These podcasts are an introduction to the stellar lineup of speakers that we've arranged to come to the 2023 conference in just a couple of weeks, the 27th to the 29th of October in Bedeck, Nova Scotia. Once again, all the information and registration link is online at freespeechandmedicine.com. In this podcast, I'm speaking with Lisa Bildy. Lisa Bildy is a lawyer who's dealt with a lot of free speech cases, especially as it pertains to medical professionals. And personally, she's very near and dear to me as she helped me through my case in 2019. I won't take the time to talk about that here, but you can read more about it by following the link on the Substack post about this podcast. One of the things an astute listener might pick up is that when I'm thanking Lisa for her help during the podcast, I mentioned that thanks to her, I'm still a lawyer. Please forgive me for my delusions of grandeur. Lisa has recently been the lawyer for important clients, such as Amy Hamm, who just happens to be another one of our speakers at Free Speech and Medicine this year, and the sadly recently deceased Richard Bilchko, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, the Toronto District School Board teacher who sadly committed suicide after being at the wrong end of a prolonged attack after daring to speak up against what he felt were inaccuracies spoken by a DEI trainer during a session which he was mandated to be part of. Although many lawyers I've spoken to have problems with what's happened over the last few years with COVID and the shutting down of the speech of medical professionals, there are very few who've actually spoken about out about it. For every lawyer I know who is brave enough, there's probably dozens who won't say anything. So I have great respect for people like Lisa who have made great sacrifices both monetarily and career-wise not to mention the attacks they've suffered for speaking out on our behalf we really really appreciate what she has done is doing and we appreciate her coming to free speech and medicine this year hello free speech and medicine podcast listeners this is the latest in our speaker series um, speaking to the great folks that have agreed to come and talk to our group at the 2023 Free Speech and Medicine Conference in Bedeck, Nova Scotia, the 27th to 29th of October. Um, you can sign up online at freespeechandmedicine.com. There's all, all kinds of information there and the registration link. Uh, tonight, I'm speaking with Lisa Bildy. Lisa is somebody who is near and dear to my heart for reasons which will uh, come up, I'm sure, during the podcast. Um, uh, Lisa, is, is, she'll tell us more about herself, but Lisa is a lawyer who's done some extremely important work in free speech and civil liberties in Canada. So we're very happy that Lisa has agreed to join us and very honored that she's agreed to speak to me tonight. Thanks, Lisa. Oh, it's, uh, it's my pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Well, maybe as per my normal format with the speakers, maybe I'll just start out by asking you, uh, who are you, where are you located, and what's your, what's your background story? How did you get to be uh, one of our speakers at Free Speech and Medicine this year? How'd that happen? <laughs> well, that's going to be a long story, so <laughs> I'll, I'll try and give you the Reader's Digest. We all have long stories. Um, but uh, I'm a lawyer in London, Ontario, and um, I sort of got into this space 
after taking a, a fairly long hiatus in my career to, to wander off and get off the hamster wheel and homeschool my kids. And I, th- I think what may have happened is when I, when I stopped behaving like a normal lawyer and um, being on the sort of normal pathway of success, I, I got sort of, um, I don't know, bouts of free thinking would start to happen to me. And, uh, and it happened with homeschooling. And then <laughs> as I was, as I was coming back to practicing when the kids got, uh, you know, old enough to not need me anymore, um, I was decided I was going to go back to practice. I hadn't thought of anything better to do than go back to practicing law. And that was when I discovered that the Law Society of Ontario is bringing in some new requirement for all lawyers to basically swear a statement of principles, um, what, what we might call, um, you know, an EDI uh, statement or a litmus test that <laughs> that shows that you're on board with with the progressive agenda. And I don't think too many lawyers really kind of were paying attention, didn't know what it was all about. But I'd been basically sitting there for the last few years while my kids were becoming more independent, watching the culture war evolve. And so when I saw this, I I, I sort of knew immediately that it was not um, as benign as it was being presented. And uh, I was also coming back with no staff and no career to speak of at that point. And uh, my husband was very gracious about continuing to, to fund my interests so uh, I decided I was going to fight it. And um, so it started with just speaking up at a meeting, putting my hand up timidly and and saying, I'm concerned about this. And one thing led to another, a, a group formed and then a bigger group. And then it turned into a major movement to push back what the Law Society was doing. And um, ultimately, we were successful when our, in our first round, we got uh, we got a slate of benchers elected to the the leadership. The benchers are sort of a quaint word for governor. To the leadership of the law society, uh, we got enough elected in 2019 in order to push that whole um, measure back and basically throw sand in the gears for the law society's woke agenda. And uh, and yeah, after that, I that led me to working for the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which seemed like a good fit after fighting for the the right for for lawyers to basically develop their own principles without their regulator telling them what their principles need to be. Mm-hmm. Right on. And now you you have left the, I shouldn't say left, but you've moved on. You now are at Libertas Law, as I understand. Correct? Right. So I spent a couple of years uh, at the Justice Center and was uh, enjoying my time there very much doing free speech cases. When COVID hit, we were immediately thrown into a very significant civil liberties battle over lockdowns and mandates and, and the like. Uh, so so it's been basically intense since the moment I started there. I've barely stopped. Um, when I left in the fall of 2021 to start my own practice uh, on good terms with the Justice Center, uh, I was also immediately deluged with the same kinds of cases. Lots of people at that time, that's when the vaccine mandates were becoming um, more widespread kids sports were being affected university students healthcare workers and basically I've just been buried ever since uh, trying very hard to fight for some of those basic things that we used to take for granted like medical freedom and you know freedom to express your own views about things and uh, where's that led me now I guess uh, there's been a couple of interesting cases recently that I'm sure I'll talk more about at the at the conference but one that's just in the news in the last couple of days is uh, Dr. Kovinder Gill, who's a, a client of mine, who was basically uh, being investigated throughout COVID for her commentary on Twitter. And we were 
uh, gearing up for what was going to be a very significant and, and hard fought hearing in the in the new year. And uh, out of the blue, the college uh, withdrew the the uh, notice of hearing against her, meaning they dropped it. And so she's she's been, I would say, vindicated in, in taking the positions that she did throughout. So I find this I find this whole area fascinating, exhilarating, exhausting. Um, I feel like we're at a, a precipice in our society where we need to really be pushing back and and you know, speaking our minds and fighting hard. And so I'm I'm really fortunate to be able to to do that as a professional going concern as well. Mm-hmm. And I you know certainly um, lawyers are at the tip of the spear and the fight against this agenda, certainly from the way that I see it. Um, and you, you, just full disclosure, so I alluded to it before, but um, you helped me. Uh, you had my case when I came on the wrong end of a free, free speech case for writing an editorial in 2019 and <clears throat> had a complaint from, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a woke Twitter mob formed to take me out and uh, thankfully, thank, thanks to you, Lisa, I'm still a lawyer, so I'm very biased in your favor. But you've had another couple of uh, who I consider very important clients recently. And maybe just you could mention a little bit about each of them. The first would be Richard. I think it, it was, his name is pronounced Blitchko, the um, the teacher who was uh, kind of on the wrong end of a uh, criticizing critical race theory in Toronto and ended up sadly committing suicide. You wanna, I, I, I know you can't say too much about it, but well, yeah, I mean, it was in the papers and uh, it's a very tragic story. But, you know, what I've discovered since um, is that this is, well, just for your listeners who may not have heard, um, this is a, a principal, a retired principal, actually, who was doing a lot of contract work for the Toronto District School Board and had done, uh, had a, a long career working with marginalized students, mostly in adult education and um, being an advocate for what he thought was the right thing, which was equity and he was um, he was a gay man himself, um, and you know fought very hard for for people who were going to fall through the cracks otherwise, and and that was a big part of his reputation. And then um, during a, what was an anti racism training session, which these things are happening everywhere, I'm I'm really shocked. Almost even me, I'm shocked by how much this is happening in, in workplaces across the country. But this was one for principals and uh, administrators in the Toronto School Board, and it was a four week session. On the second week, he um, pushed back a little bit when given an opportunity to speak. He didn't interrupt or anything, but there was a chance for some questions with this. Um, the instructor was basically telling the, the assembled group that um, that racism, black racism was worse in Canada than in the United States. And so Mr. Bilkstow put up his hand virtually, it was on a Zoom call and said, well, I'd like to push back a little bit there. I've worked in inner city Buffalo, and I would say that it's, you know, it's um, it's not really a very fair fair thing to say. Canada's a lot more just. Uh, we have um, our healthcare and our education systems are are better equipped to deal with people, you know, from from marginalized backgrounds. That, you know, it was not he was not aggressive about it, but uh, he got basically. A, <laughs> I don't think attacked is actually too too strong of a word, really. Uh, he was certainly chastised anyway for his, um, well, he wasn't called a white supremacist in that particular call, but he but he um, he he was he was criticized for having the audacity to challenge this black instructor during her during her um, presentation. And then the next week, she raised it again, the third week of the session, and said, 
I wish how lucky she had been to have this wonderful example of, of the resistance that upholds white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so then she spent almost an hour between her and other people who chimed in, because it was a bit of a mo- like a Maoist struggle session, honestly. There were all these people kind of expressing their concerns about what he had said to. He was never named, but everybody knew who they were talking about. And it was the gentleman last week who questioned something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and basically an hour long attack on him and his integrity and and uh, suggesting that he was somehow um, interested in upholding white supremacy. It was it was devastating for him. And uh, we we had started a lawsuit and it was going forward. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know I I can't say for sure what was going on in his head at the time, but um, but I know that uh, that this was all very traumatic for him. And ultimately, he chose to take his own life. So. Uh, in, in the wake of that, I have had a deluge of inquiries and consults with people from, you know, teachers, principals, uh, uh, employees in various public, public and private sectors who are all going through the same kind of very aggressive uh, EDI training or anti-racism training, which is designed, I think, to make them feel as humiliated as possible. Um, I don't know that it's, I think that's part of the, the critical race theory approach is to, is to make people feel discomfort and, um, and, and to sit with that discomfort. But as we can see, sometimes that can go too far and you don't know where your message is going to land. Somebody might, like Richard, be, uh, be more vulnerable. And when that message lands the wrong way, uh, bad things can happen. So mm. anyway, it's been a very interesting couple of months. Mm-hmm. And and the other case I thought worth bringing up, partly because it's a very important case, but partly because she is a speaker at our conference too. But I've already done an interview, uh, a speaker interview with Amy Ham, who's one of your clients in um, in uh, the cases in BC. You are representing her. Um, most people who are listening to this have heard about Amy's case. So I don't think we need to rehash that, but maybe you can tell us where that case stands and what's the next steps for Amy? Yeah, well, it's been a, a very much a Kafkaesque um, process. They, you know, they always say the process is the punishment, and, and I would say that's the case. It's, it's dragged on now over a year. We're resuming the next stage of the hearing because uh, there simply weren't enough days in the in, in the period that we'd set aside last year for the hearing. I guess it started in October and continued in November and then January, I think, if I'm remembering. It's all blurring together. And then we couldn't find dates for all six counsel and witnesses and the panel and everybody to, to come together again until this fall. So so um, we have another 10 days scheduled starting in right around the time of the conference, actually. Um, so we'll, we'll start uh, late October and then continue into November. So, uh, yes, you know all the facts about Amy. But, you know, what's interesting is... is um, uh, both you and Amy came uh, into the Justice Center, and so that's where I was. And there were other cases similar where we were seeing regulators starting to basically um, accept these complaints from the public as opposed mm-hmm. to from patients or, or clients, and in effect uh, demonstrating that the the regulatory system could be weaponized. And so your yours had a happy ending. I'm sure Amy's will too. We're going to fight awfully hard to make sure we do have a happy ending. But that's become a big concern of mine. Uh, yours was maybe a bit more of a canary in the coal mine, but um, but we are seeing a lot more of this sort of thing uh, where, again, regulators, uh, it was happening during COVID too, where a lot of the regulators think that whatever you say on, on Twitter, whether it has anything at all to do with your 
with your practice, with your patients uh, is fair game. And so we're really struggling with where that line is of, of what people can, can actually say without getting in trouble. And then, of course, the, the secondary question, which is not just that they're regulating it, but that they're honoring these and uh, using the uh, um, complaints that are coming in from strangers, perfect strangers on the Internet who don't like what somebody has to say and think, wow, this person is a, a member of such and such a college. And I'm going to file a complaint. And, um, you know, some of these complaints are not even from other Canadians. They're coming in from places all over the world. So it's uh, interesting times to be a regulated professional. It is. And just to sort of throw in a few gratuitous comments on top of that, uh, I've <clears throat> I've noticed I've never seen a physician or nurse or medical professional hauled onto the mat for having a view that is too left wing. So, for instance, there were medical professionals who wrote editorials saying that vaccinated people deserve to die they should yeah. be denied health care. Sorry, unvaccinated people deserve to die. They should they should be denied health care. They should, uh, you know, be cast out, and not get ventilators and whatnot. And that was absolutely fine. As, as far as I'm aware, and I could be wrong, but I don't think there was ever a complaint that the, a college entertained about that. But uh, certainly there's been many, many, many um, healthcare professionals just in, just in the last two or three years alone that I know of um, because, you know, behind the scenes, they kind of talk to me because I know I'm safe to, to tell. And it, it's quite amazing. If you have any view that's anywhere to the right of Mao, it seems like you're, uh, you're fair game. And the colleges have basically been turned into bludgeons wielded by those against the left on, to those in the center and the perceived right, you know, to, to smack down their political opinions. And colleges sadly seem only, only too happy to comply. It just seems to be just just fine. We will we will serve that function. We're happy to do it. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, sorry, a bit of a diatribe there. Um, so, Lisa, we we have uh, we have three lawyers coming to speak at uh, Free Speech and Medicine this year. We have uh, James Manson, who's associated with the JCCF and has done some good work on civil liberties. We have Eris Lavranos, who's a physician for a number of years and then went back to law school who's a civil liber libertarian and we have you uh, do you want to give us a few hints at what you'll be speaking about at free speech and medicine well i'm always interested in uh in the big picture questions i i, I certainly am happy to chat with um the medical professionals who are there in terms of where i think the line is starting to be drawn on on um what you can get away with saying in, in uh as a regulated professional it's it's not entirely clear, but but even more broadly than that, I I, I want to think about how um, how we can prepare and protect ourselves during this sort of censorious period that we're in, and uh, ensure that you know we're we're pushing back effectively, and um, you know in terms of these these DEI uh, commitments that we have to make, that, you know if this kind of thing comes up in your in your medical college that people are aware and, and ready to, to respond. Um, so I, I want to look at practical solutions. I think that's, that's one of my strengths having fought practically on the, uh, the law society question. I always found not, not now so much, but in, in the early days when people were still kind of like shocked at what was going on in the world, you go to a conference and, and everybody would just kind of highlight all the craziness that they had seen. And at the end of it, you're like, okay, yeah. So we, what are we going to do about it, guys? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. We need to do something. What are, what can we do? What should we do? 
uh, what you know that that's really where I think that our our minds should be turning. Um, it probably should have turned you know twenty years ago, but better late than never. So so my talk will focus on on solutions. Right. Um, I'll sort of as we draw to a close. There's probably there's two questions that spring to mind for you. Um, number one, w- you know, this is a, a question that many people think might be gratuitous, but your personal view, why why do you think it's so important for medical professionals to have free speech? Why have you in some way dedicated your career to this lately? Why why do you think that's an important thing in society? Well, I mean, (laughs) I think we just got a little taste of it over the last few years. Um, It's so easy for the medical profession in particular to, I I, I think for just the, the kind of People who go into medicine are are going to be high achievers. They're on that on the uh, on the hamster wheel. They're on that path to success, right? And so they probably many of them haven't stepped off to really kind of examine things from all perspectives. You know, they're focused on 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 their jobs. And I um, I have found that a lot of uh, in hospital settings sometimes, and I'm gonna I'm not, I don't really want to annoy all of the, your attendees and listeners, but I think there are a lot of egos in the medical profession. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't I don't count myself out either okay <laughs> well and and so um it, it can be very easy for for I think dissenting voices to to get squashed in all of that and so I think we really need to protect that because it, again it's it, I, we, what, what we've seen in the last few years is a um, almost an enforced consensus, and uh, and because there are certain people in hospital settings who, you know, will decide your future, whether you get your privileges back, and, and these kinds of things, people will just go along because it's it's you know, they don't want to lose their career. Um, so we really need to ensure because of course if the if the consensus coalesces around the the wrong ideas, uh, the bad ideas, we all go off the cliff together. We absolutely need to ensure that there are dissenting voices and that those are valued and protected. Because in that environment in particular, I think it's very hard to get those dissenting views across just by even in the best of times, even probably not just during a, 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 the COVID period. But um, uh, but we didn't do that. In fact, we we soundly punished anybody who had a dissenting opinion. And uh, I, don't, I guess we'll see in, as things unfold and we start to really tally up the harms from what we've just done. Uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll see what the cost of all of that was. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I think we just we have to be very actively in, uh, protecting those dissenting voices because yeah, they're, it's it's important. Even if they're wrong too, it's important that we at least test things. That's the scientific method requires us to to examine things and question and and not accept things uh, just because we're told. Right. Yeah. Well, if we're, if we're not allowed to be wrong, then we could never find out what's right. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, going back to what you said about ego, I think it's very true in the medical profession and probably, you know, in professions in general, it's true. But I, I guess what I say is I think there's the this positive and negative aspect to ego. If somebody has zero ego and they're a complete nervous Nelly shrinking violet, they will never have the courage to stand up and go against the crowd. So if they have zero ego, they never go against the crowd. But I take it to its extreme. I think um, one one has to be humble to allow one's opinions to be criticized. So it's the people with big egos. And we've seen that, I think, with medical officers of health and politicians. If the ego is too big, then uh, you cannot allow 
somebody to criticize you and you you're the one who's going to quash free speech if you happen to have a power position you have a big ego so i think it can cut both ways it can make somebody brave enough to speak out and it can make make somebody so sure about their opinion that they're really willing to quash others so there's the the upsides and the downsides and and definitely doctors are are known for it. a great uh, great quick joke about there's this joke about how many surgeons does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is just one. He holds it and the world turns around him. <laughs> world revolves around him. Uh, well, in fairness, I've met a, a lot of amazing doctors over the last few years. I've had the, the privilege to have quite a few in my practice and then just meeting some in, uh, you know, in other um, settings. And, and uh, you know, so I, it's certainly um, not, not an indictment of the entire profession. There've been some great people who've suffered very badly too, for having stuck their necks out and, uh, uh, we, we owe them a debt of, of gratitude and yourself included you put yourself out there too and it's not easy to do um and, it, and it's not easy to do when your whole professional career could be on the line because you've put a lot into it uh, but you know these are important issues and we need to um you know I, I i don't think we can just pretend that these are not significant problems uh they aren't going to just go away unless we actively fight against them Mm -hmm. No, you're right. There are there are a lot of a lot of uh, great great people in medicine, and I think the one downside, the one thing that doctors get, the, the one feature of physicians that gets used against them in the free speech battle is one of the things about doctors is we're real people, people, and we like to be liked, and so it's very hard to say something that cuts against the grain because even if it's three percent of the population who is absolutely madly woke and against your very reasonable opinion. It's very hard to have people shouting at you and saying you're an awful person. And we're not the kind of people who handle that well in general. And so I think that that is the our our personality feature that gets twisted and, and used against us in, in my in my thinking on it. But yeah, uh, I don't think that's easy for anybody, but uh yeah, maybe maybe more so when you have a professional reputation as well. It's not just your person it's not just a personal attack. It's also you know, it has a, a spinover, a spillover effect onto your your professional reputation, which has value too. Yeah, well, I think I think the personality uh, when you look at what doctors, you know, self-select and the, the the helping professions, we are people who like to we like people and we like people to like us and not necessarily as true if somebody's like a tech entrepreneur they just want to do really cool things with a computer uh but you know doctors lives are bound up with other people and bound up with these relationships and it's very very hard i've, I've talked to doctors before if you you have 30 patients in a day and one of them gets angry and yells at you because you wouldn't fill their unreasonable oxycontin prescription and that's the one that stays with you for the next month you don't you don't remember the 29 people who you helped so it's it's challenging at times um anyway one more question as we draw to a close um it's something i thought a lot about and i'm interested to hear your opinion do you think the lack of clarity by professional colleges over what is the limit what are the lines around free speech what are you allowed to say what are you not allowed to say that is extremely vague it's it's defined as you know professionalism or uh, don't say unreasonable things, but they they don't really define what's reasonable and unreasonable. Do you think that's a feature or a bug built into the system in, in terms of the college's view viewpoint on things? Well, I, I think it's uh, I'm not sure that anybody necessarily set out to to make it one or the other, but it's become a feature because 
a lot of these words are subject to uh, subjective interpretation. So it, as you pointed out, some some doctors said some egregious things. I, I couldn't believe some of the things I was seeing medical professionals say, um, you know, uh, misleading things. Um, uh, I saw one doctor in Ontario who um, was pointing out the it made it look like for get, for children getting the vaccine that it was it was a dramatic like he, he mixed up uh, or at least he only presented one kind of risk variable right the um to, to make it sound like this you're going to save children's lives by by giving them the shot but it wasn't it wasn't quite accurate the way he presented it um it's just one small example that jumps to mind but there were so many things that were just over the top and and wrong and uh, misleading and none of those people were as you said none of those people seem to get taken to task so so it is something that because it is subjective it's only being used where somebody doesn't like what you have to say if they agree with it then they're then they're not going to pursue it uh, and that is a big that is a big problem and I, I think that the way to deal with it is is probably for or at least one way is for our legislatures to to put some um some clear delineation right in the legislation you know saying uh speech is off limits. I mean, that would that would be my dream. Uh, mm. Speech speech is off limits. Political speech certainly is off limits um, and can't be regulated. But uh, I don't know that they would go that far. And you have to have courageous um, politicians, and we don't have too many of those. So that that's for sure. Yes. Um, well, Lisa, we could talk a long time. There's a lot of other questions I want to ask you, and a lot more I want to hear you say. But um, that said, I. We don't want to give away too much because we're hoping that people will actually be stimulated to uh, register for the conference, come out, meet you in person, listen to you in person, and have a chance to ask you questions face-to-face. So uh, we thank you again for agreeing to come to Cape Breton and really look forward to hearing you speak at Free Speech and Medicine this year. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chris. Looking forward to it too.